0: I might might cover some ground that I I covered last week, but I wanted to go back and uh, see, I think I would mentioned Methodius and Cyril, who evangelized the Slavic nations or the Slavic people. They created the Cyrillic alphabet that is the foundation of the Russian language today and in parts of, of, of other Slavic languages, but... Really foundationally it is the, the, the Russian language they have their it's why they have their own alphabet. It is basically the alphabet that um, Methodius and Cyril created so that they could write the scriptures in the native tongue of the Slavs so that they could read and understand the scriptures for themselves. Now this was in 863 and um, so we're going to see. Um, it's interesting that they did that back then, but things kind of changed as, as uh, time went on. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your divine providence in history. Lord, that you have worked in so many amazing ways. Some, some we know through recorded history, but in so many ways... You have worked, Lord, through people, through means, in ways that we will never know, but we know that you have, and we thank you for that, and we thank you, Lord, that even our very own lives are yours to use as you see fit as you continue to write your story, And bring about your plan and purpose, Father. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of that in your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So I bring this up because in 863, when um, Methodius and Cyril are sent by the Pope, um, well, actually, at the request of the um, the Emperor of the East, not the Pope the emperor of the East uh, asks them to go and to basically evangelize, um, take the gospel to the Slavs. And that was at the request of these Slavic kings who were being um, harassed by the Bulgars who were a very... um, well, they just didn't get along well with anybody else. And so instead of requesting the, the emperor of the Byzantine Empire to send an army, they asked the emperor of the Byzantine Empire to send missionaries because they said if we can convert the Bulgars to Christ, then, then we know that they'll be good neighbors. It's interesting how that works. And so that's how Methodius and Cyril got sent over there. And, and actually it did work in time. Uh, And then we talked about in 871, Alfred the Great, who became king of England and he united the seven kingdoms, created common law based on the Ten Commandments, restored the education system, um, translated again, here is King Alfred, the Anglo-Saxon king, and he translates the great literary works that were translated into Latin. Uh, But he also translated the four Gospels from Latin into Anglo-Saxon so that the Anglo-Saxons in England, so that English people could have, uh, could read the Gospels. Now, keep in mind, there's no printing presses, so all the Bibles are copied by hand. They're very expensive, but yet the king has commissioned this work because he wants to get as, as much of the Scripture out to the people as possible. This is in 871. Then in 874, um, quite by accident, an island in the North Atlantic was discovered. Uh, the name of that island is, is Velded Island. Does anyone know what we commonly call Lidveldet Island? Iceland? Yeah, Iceland. It was discovered, do you remember who it was first discovered by? No, no. It was first discovered by a Viking named Gardar, who was on his way to uh, inspect an island that his wife had inherited from her rich Norwegian um, father, who was a king in Norway, uh, the Herbides Island. And uh, he got blown off course and discovers this island island uh, he, he goes there and uh, he calls it Gardar's home he didn't stay there though he sailed back to Sweden and um, or to Norway and uh, and he never goes back but a few years later another Viking by the name of Nadad he is also blown off course and he lands on this island that was covered with snow. And he called it Sneyland or Snowland. And he goes back and he tells everybody about this island he found. And nobody believed him, but he kept talking about it. And finally, uh, there was a guy by the name of... Ephraim, do you remember his name? You always like to say his name. Floki they Vir- <laughs> Floki Vilgard sets out to to go back to this island that he keeps hearing about and so he goes to actually explore Sneyland or Snowland and he takes people he takes animals and he goes and he lands on Sneyland. and um it's everything he thought it would be, except he did not realize how hard the winters would be. And he ends up staying there for two winters, and all the cattle he brought died, and it was very difficult. Uh, and he realized this is not snowland, this is Iceland. This island is covered in ice, and he named it Iceland, and that is a name that stuck. But eventually, from 874. Uh, By 930 A.D. there were over 20,000 settlers living on Iceland. Now I bring this up because these Viking voyages west to this island of Iceland meant that the Vikings on Iceland sailed farther west and eventually they discovered another place, um, we'll talk about that in just a moment. And so while the Vikings are on Iceland, um, settling and multiplying, um, as I said, by 930 they had 20,000 settlers. In 936, Otto I becomes the king of Germany. And Otto the First expands his kingdom across Eastern Europe. So he took over, he took in, he conquered the Slavs in Poland and Bohemia. Um, he also conquered the Magars or the Hungarians. So Poland, you know what we would understand to be Poland, Czechoslovakia. Um, Hungary, all of those Eastern European countries. Otto of Germany takes over this region um, of of Eastern Europe. He thought about invading Italy, but decided that he would marry his way into power, and he did. And then uh, the Pope, knowing that Otto was powerful, was having problems with uprisings in Italy... Because Italy is not really this unified nation as, as much of Europe at that time. You have these smaller kingdoms. And uh, the Pope at that time was dealing with revolts and uprisings. So he asked Otto to come and help him uh, put down these uprisings. And Otto did, and he did it very successfully. He did it so successfully And the Pope was so pleased that in 962, uh, the Pope crowns Otto, this is Pope John XII, Pope John XII crowns Otto, the Roman Emperor of the West, and gives him the title of Emperor Augustus. Now if you know the history of the Roman Empire, uh, Caesar Augustus, Augustus is like the supreme ruler. Um, And so now Otto is given this title by the Pope. He's called the Emperor Augustus. He's the supreme emperor of the Roman. He's the Roman emperor of the West. And his kingdom, Otto's kingdom, became officially known as the Holy Roman Empire so this this name the Holy Roman Empire really was officially embraced in 936 when Otto becomes the Emperor Augustus or the Roman Emperor of the West and up until 1806 every German king held this title Every German king up until 1806, um, when Napoleon kind of took over Europe, every German king up to that time was called, held the title of Roman Emperor. Then in 956, Vladimir I of Russia is born, and he grows up to become the fifth Grand Duke of Kiev. Now, that's kind of interesting if you think we have a war going on today. And in 956, Vladimir of Russia, the fifth Grand Duke of Kiev, a direct descendant of Rurik, the first Viking leader of the Rus. So remember those Swedish Vikings settled in in what we call Russia today in all that area that we call now Russia, Ukraine. Poland, all those Eastern European countries, these were, these were people that were settled, conquered by the Vikings, and many of them, the Russians today, they're, they're direct descendants of these Viking people. That's who Vladimir I was. He was a direct descendant of Rurik, the first Viking leader of the Rus in that region of Europe, and he is now the fifth Grand Duke of Kiev. Um, in 956. And it was under Vladimir I that Russia decided to embrace Eastern Christianity. So the, the religion, the Christian faith of the Byzantine Empire of Constantinople. Instead of the Christian faith of the Roman Church. And uh, remember they, they had both representatives from both come. And Vladimir, because of the splendor of Constantinople, was enamored with, with the beauty of the architecture and the beauty of the Eastern Church. And so he decided that's the direction Russia would go. And to this day, the Russian Orthodox Church is, is the Eastern Orthodox Church. It is very closely aligned with all of the other expressions of the Eastern Church. Um, so while all of this is happening in Europe, you know, in the, in the um, 900s, in 960 in China, the Song Dynasty comes to power. And you might say, well, what's, what's the big deal about that? Because, you know, the Chinese were over there pretty much isolated to themselves still, um, There was still the Silk Road and trade, but they were doing their thing there. They weren't really concerned with the West. Um, But under the Song Dynasty, there were some notable inventions, such as paper money. Paper money was invented by the Chinese under the Song Dynasty. So uh, if you have paper money in your pocket, you can think the Chinese, and specifically the Song Dynasty for inventing paper money so you don't have to carry around really heavy coins everywhere you go. The other thing they invented was movable type. Uh, movable type was invented under the Song Dynasty. Um, There was another thing invented that we all take advantage of in our homes in lots of different ways, and that is porcelain. Porcelain was invented by the Chinese under the Song Dynasty. There was another little interesting invention that came to to be under the Song Dynasty. And if you've ever been hiking and needed to know what direction you needed to go and you pulled your handy compass out of your pocket, it was under the Song Dynasty that the, the compass needle was invented by the Chinese. And hopefully none of you ladies are benefactors of this invention under the Song Dynasty, and that would be the invention of lily feet. Does anyone know what lily feet are? Lily feet actually became something uh, that lasted for centuries in China, unfortunately. That was the habit of, I don't know why, they thought little feet were dainty and to be desired. And so when a little girl was born of a family of any notable means, they would bind their feet in binding so that their feet could not grow. And they called it lily feet. And so as a result, these women couldn't walk. They had to be carried everywhere. These were you know, women of means, and so they didn't need to walk because they were, they had these beautiful lily feet that was to be desired. I, don't, I never were, was able to understand why that was a thing, but it was. And that was developed under the Song Dynasty. So, um, 985, Eric... The Red settles Greenland. So, those Vikings that found Iceland, you know, back in 874, they flourish, they grow. Uh, then, Eric the Red, he is from Norway and um, he gets into trouble. He's got an, a very, very bad temper and he got so angry that he killed a man and he was going to have to pay for his crime, but instead of paying for his crime in Norway, he flees, and he flees west. He gets in his ship, and he sails, and um, he finds Greenland, and he settles Greenland, and uh, Greenland becomes a settlement for the Vikings. His son, Leif Erikson, in 10, 000, or 1003, uh, discovers America. So before, but before Leif Erikson discovers America, he um, takes the gospel to Greenland. So Leif Erikson, the son of Eric the Red, um, was, from the time he was a child, wanted to meet King Olaf of Norway. King Olaf was Very um, well-respected. He was a larger-than-life figure, literally just gigantic Viking guy. And in 999, King Olaf converts to Christianity and becomes a Christian. And Leif Erikson is able to go to Norway to meet King Olaf. He goes back to his father's land. His father can't go back. Eric the Red cannot go back to, to Norway and uh, er- Eric's wife and Leif's mother was a Christian. And when, when Leif meets King Olaf and finds out Olaf is a Christian, uh, through all of that, Leif Erikson is converted to Christ. And he goes to Greenland to take the gospel to the Vikings in Greenland. His dad, Le- uh, Red, Eric the Red, will not embrace uh, the gospel. He kept his pagan gods and never did. That we know of, uh, receive Christ. But Eric was a Christian, and Eric took the gospel to Greenland. And then in ten in one thousand and three, Eric leads an expedition, and he sails west, looking for this land that that they kept hearing about. That other Viking sailors and explorers said there's this other land beyond Greenland that we have seen the shore filled with. Trees Well, no one ever landed there. And so Leif decides that he's going to find this land and he does. And he f- sails to North America uh, in 10,000 and 1003, uh, and discovers North America before, you know, almost, almost five centuries before um, Christopher Columbus discovers the Americas. Um, Remember, in um, 711, the Muslims invade uh, Spain, and they are in, they take over the Iberian Peninsula. Well, in 1037, what's called the Reconquista, um, or the Reconquest of Spain, begins, and so Toledo, Spain was a... Was a little kingdom there. It was a large city, a small area, or a small kingdom, if you will. And Toledo um, was a Christian stronghold, if you will. And from Toledo and another uh, area in, in northern Spain, they began to reconquer Spain for Christ. And that reconquest of Spain lasts over the next 450 years. So for the next 400 plus years, the Spanish are reconquering Spain from the Muslims. Uh, In 1089, uh, a guy by the name of what we call him El Cid. He is a Spanish hero. El Cid helps the Spanish... Reclaim their land from the Moors. He was known by the Muslims as El Said. And the the word Said means Lord. The Lord is what the Muslims called him. And El Said was shortened to El Cid. And it's what we know him as. It's what the Spanish call him and is known as today. And and so he was and is considered a Spanish hero and instrumental in helping Spain. he took um, a very instrumental, I think it was Valencia, Spain. He took, it was an instrumental city on the Mediterranean Sea, and he took that city, and that was key in helping secure Spain um, from the Muslims. Um, and uh, Spain is the only place that the Christians conquered from the Muslims that remained permanently um, in Christian hands. Uh, Spain never went back uh, to Muslim control. By 1492 was the last vestige of of the Muslim stronghold in the very southern part of Spain, Granada, Spain, that the, the Muslims finally abandoned in 1492. In in 1492, the reconquest of Spain was complete from the Muslims. So from 1037 to 1492, this reconquest of Spain took place. And Spain has never been taken back from the Muslims. So um, we'll look at some of the Crusades, the beginning of the Crusades. And the lands that they took back from the Muslims in the Crusades fell back into Muslim hands eventually. In 1066, we have William the Conqueror and the Battle of, uh, of Hastings. Uh, so in 1066, William, who we know as William the Conqueror or William I, remember he was a Norman ruler. He, had, uh, he was the Duke of Normandy. He was the cousin of Edward, King Edward, the king of England. And Edward died without an heir. And Edward had promised his kingdom to William when they were children growing up together in France. William was French. Edward was English, but he went to France and was raised there and educated there. And that's where he met his cousin William. Um, And so upon the death of Edward, um, there is a fight for the throne of England. And Harold of Wessex was thought to be, he probably really was the, the next in line for the throne. But William believed that he was in line for the throne. And so William invaded England. And at the Battle of Wessex, he defeats Harold of Wessex. I mean, at the Battle of Hastings, he defeats Harold of Wessex. And then, after that defeat, uh, after his victory at the Battle of Hastings, William is crowned the King of England. And he is officially known as William I, or more commonly known as William the Conqueror. He was French. Uh, He spoke French, he spoke English too, but French became the language of the English court, if you will. It was kind of a weird thing, and the English didn't really like it so much. They didn't like the fact that the Normans or the French were ruling them. But uh, William started what's called the feudal system in England, um, which lasted for centuries. And he instituted the feudal system in England in order to keep control, uh, to keep the people from rising up. And if you know what the feudal system is, this is where the king would, um, under the king, there were what what were called barons. And the king who owned all the land, basically, the, 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 the nation belonged to the king. And so everything belonged to the king. It was the king's land. And so the king would give Land to barons. So he would give large areas of land to a baron. And obviously, that baron, in exchange for that land, gave his loyalty to the king. And with his wealth and power in control of the land, then the baron would give to knights um, fiefdoms or fiefdoms which were smaller areas of land within the huge area of land a baron would control. And these knights would be over fiefdoms, smaller areas, and they would oversee these smaller areas. Well, who, who worked the land? Well, serfs did, or those directly under the knights, they would give land for farming, and so in exchange for being able to live on the land and, if you will, call the land yours, though they didn't really own it, but it was their land, these people were called vilians. That's where we get our word villain from today. And they worked for the knights who worked for the barons who worked for the king. And so the vilans and the serfs these were the peasants who worked the land, so they were able to live on the land and grow food, and they didn't get paid. They were able to live and survive, and then they provided in exchange for a place to live and land to live on, they, they were allowed to have food and have a place to live, and that's kind of how the nation ran for centuries. Uh, and you see that it was would be very difficult for you to go from being a peasant, a serf, a velan, even, to rise above that to become a knight or a baron. And so you were born into. So if you were the child uh, of a baron, you were born and you would be given that land. That was your inheritance. And as you wheeled and dealed and, you know, conquered other areas or made deals with the king and the king would take land from one guy and give it to you. I mean, this is the way, unfortunately, the way it worked. It's why eventually, you know, freedom came because men didn't want to be enslaved all their lives, but it took a long time. So it was William the Conqueror that put this feudal system in place in England. Uh, He also... um, Eventually, you know, the French language was absorbed into the Anglo-Saxon culture. And so our modern English today really is a blending of French and Anglo-Saxon. So you have Old English, which is what the Anglo-Saxons spoke and and wrote. It's what... um, You know, for instance, the Canterbury Tales um, in Old English. Well, Old English blended with French became what we call Middle English. Uh, And so this is how our language uh, eventually evolved. We talked a little bit about this last week. In 1076, this is what's called the investiture, the investiture controversy. And this was not just; it wasn't. It wasn't strictly between Pope Gregory the Seventh and Henry the Fourth, but this was the most high-profile uh, controversy concerning investitures. So, so again, going back to this system that existed not just in England but across Europe. So remember, in the West, with the fall of the Roman Empire, the civil magistrate that was the Roman Empire disintegrates, and you've got these Germanic tribes that have come in, and so you've got chieftains that basically become kings over their kingdoms. And um, the Frankish kingdom, France, Gaul, all that area of France in in Western Europe. Uh, Those were tribes, and eventually certain tribes overcame other tribes, and so it's how we come to have our countries today, even on our map in Europe. So France, the name France comes from the Franks, which were a Germanic tribe. Well, so as the Roman Empire collapses and you got the barbarian uh, tribes that are moving in, taking over. They eventually establish these kingdoms. The Pope is there. Christianity, really, these Germanic tribes become Christian. So you had German chieftains, Germanic chieftains who became Christian even before Constantine. The Roman emperor becomes Christian because the gospel is taken to these regions of the Roman Empire. And so um, Christianity, you know, is the Vikings become Christians. These German tribes become Christians. These Germanic tribes. Germany is called Germany because it was ruled by the Germanic tribes. It's why it's called Germany today. Um, No, there was no Catholicism as we understand it today. It was the gospel, yes. And so this is why, you know, for instance, in 863, Methodius and Cyril don't have a problem. In fact, it makes perfect sense to them to uh, copy the scriptures in the common language of the people so the people can read the Bible. Now, with the investiture controversy... And under Pope Gregory VII, things changed in the church, which changed things overall. So, Pope Gregory, his name was Hildebrand, and Hildebrand believed, or Pope Gregory believed that the church should not be beholden to the state. The state or the civil magistrate, the civil rulers, should not have authority over the church. And I don't disagree with him. But what? remember what had been happening. You had popes that crowned kings. You had popes now that are, have crowned someone. The Holy Roman Emperor. Emperor of the Holy Roman Church. Emperor Augustus. Well, the pope did this. And so the popes created the problem now Gregory is dealing with. And so Henry IV is the Roman emperor. He's the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And now, so what Henry would do as the Roman emperor, and in in, in, in a way to keep control of his kingdom, Henry would invest someone with authority. He would invest a bishop, a lord. Well, the bishops were lords. They were powerful men. And it was the emperor who would appoint the bishops who would rule over the church. And so when the emperor invested a a bishop with power, he would give to that bishop a ring and a staff as a symbol of the authority that that bishop possessed. Now this bishop was a bishop in the church because now this is, remember, the Holy Roman Empire. So church and state were were all intertwined and it was hard to tell where they were separated. And they didn't set out to do this, but through, you know, beginning with Pepin the Short. The Pope crowns him, gives him power under the Pope's name because the Pope needs someone to help him. They do the same with Charlemagne. And sure enough, Charlemagne, you know, keeps the Muslims at bay and keeps them from coming any farther into Europe. And so... Um, Charlemagne is crowned on Christmas Day the emperor of the Roman Empire. Then when you get to Otto I, and this Holy Roman Empire becomes this official thing. And now the Roman Empire is the, this, these German states, these Germanic tribes, these Germanic kingdoms that now cover all of what we know today as Europe, Western Europe, Eastern Europe all the way over to where, where the Russians are. And so, um, and these kings are investing bishops with authority. Well, Pope Gregory says, mm, this isn't good because this is corrupting. Because these guys aren't made bishops. They, they're not invested with this authority because they are godly men. They're invested with this authority because the king needs a yes man. And so the, the potential for corruption is great because they're basically, it, it's called simony. They were buying these positions. So who was invested? Who was given the ring and the staff? Well, the guy who could make the greatest promise to the king, I've got the biggest army, I've got the most money, I've got the most, you, you, you invest your authority in me and I will be your man. And so bishoprics were up for um, purchase. And Pope Gregory VII, and I think rightly so, said this isn't the way it should be. Now, interestingly enough, up until this time also, the Pope, so how is the Pope elected today? Do you know? Who elects the Pope? Cardinals elect the Pope. Well, before Gregory the Seventh. It was the people who elected the pope. And up until this time, most of your popes were in Italy, but not all of them were. So what happened at some points in history was people didn't like what the pope was doing. And so we'll just elect our own pope. And you had popes in France. You had popes in Italy. There were times when you had more than one pope because... People didn't like what one pope did, so people decided, we'll just elect our own pope, because the people elected the pope. Well, Gregory says, no, that's not good, because if the people are electing the pope, then, the, then that also could become corrupted. So Gregory changes it, and Gregory makes it where popes, from, from that point on, are elected by the cardinals. The cardinals elect the pope. And he did that to try to reform the church, to to weed out corruption in the church. Well, you know, this whole thing of investiture was another controversy. So this is the whole thing where, you know, Pope Gregory excommunicates Henry. Henry says, you're not the pope, because remember, it wasn't the cardinals who elected the pope. It was the people that elected him. So Henry, who's the ruler of the people, says, well, guess what? You're not pope anymore. And Henry underestimated the power of the pope because, the, because what, what united the people was the Christian faith. So um, with all of the things that, that were wrong and were potentially wrong with the way this system was, one thing that was for sure was that by this time in history, Europe was Christian, period. Christian Europe was Christian, and, um, and, and you know, so you've got the Roman Catholic Church now, or what we call it was just the, wasn't called the Roman Catholic Church. It was just the, it was the Roman Church. And you still have an Eastern church and you have a Western church and it was the Roman church and it was the Byzantine church. It was the Western church and it was the Eastern church. And the Eastern church was, was centered in Constantinople and the Western church was centered in Rome. Rome was the center of the Western church. It's why we call the Roman Catholic church today the Roman Catholic church. It was centered in Rome. But at this time, the Western church was just the Western church. It had a pope in power because that's how it evolved with the disintegration of the Roman Empire. And Christianity and the church became the thing that held everything together in Europe. So you had all these different kings and kingdoms and tribes and chieftains And there was all kinds of stuff taking place. And there was conflict all over the place. But what solidified, what unified everything was Christianity. And so there is no doubt. So um, at this point in time, basically paganism is driven from Europe. You've got to go to the eastern borders of, of what we would call Poland today and into the areas of Russia to find paganism the way it existed in Europe pre-Christian. And so by this time, Europe is Christian. Paganism is no more. Um, And all of those pagan tribes have now been Christianized. Now, did they all believe orthodox things? No, they didn't, because... Most of those Germanic tribes were also Aryan. So they adopted the Christianity that Arius believed. So they didn't believe Jesus had a dual nature. They believed Jesus only had a divine nature. And so there were things that that were different. But what's interesting is all of those tribes, even those Germanic tribes who were mostly Aryan in their belief, they eventually. Embrace the Christianity of Nicaea, the Nicene Council. Um, and so the Western Church was Orthodox in its Christian belief. And so Pope Gregory is trying to reform the Church. He's trying to take the Church out from under the civil authority, which now it's starting to appear as though the Roman Emperor believes, well, he didn't appear, he did believe that he had authority over the Pope and over the church. And they kind of ruled together, they played well together for a time, but now they weren't so much anymore because the church was gaining more power, the, the Roman emperor wanted more power, and, and as long as the Pope cooperated, he was okay, and the Pope is now saying, hey, you don't have the authority to a pope bishops to appoint bishops, Because you're appointing guys that really aren't qualified. There's nothing spiritual about these guys. It's all about power and money. And that's not what the bishop should be. He's supposed to be the guy that's overseeing the churches. And so um, that was the whole controversy between Gregory and Henry. And it appeared that Henry got the upper hand and then... Henry was under pressure because, remember, Gregory says no sacraments. He forbid the priest to give the sacraments. And then the people rose up against Henry and it's like, hey, you got to figure something out here. And so Henry uh, goes to Gregory and, you know, begs forgiveness. But eventually it, it keeps going back and forth. And so eventually Gregory is exiled and he dies in exile Uh, Henry dies. They never reconciled uh, with each other and the controversy was never settled in their lifetimes. This goes on and continues to be a controversy in the church. Um, In 1096, you have the very first crusade. It's not really technically known as the First Crusade. What's called the First Crusade, technically, the First Crusade took place in 1099. But in 1096, the very first, the earliest crusade, that's really not, not even considered anything because it was such a complete and total failure. Um, do any of my history students here remember who led the, the, that earliest crusade? We haven't got there yet. Well, it was led by Peter the Hermit and Walter the Penniless. Boy, don't they sound like powerful guys. Well, uh, if you think their names don't sound very powerful, obviously they were not because they never even made it to Jerusalem. It, it was just a horrible, horrible failure that just wasted lives uh, of people. But in 1099, a much more organized and well-financed crusade took place, which actually culminated in the the conquering of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was taken back from the Muslims. Uh, They needed help again, and then there was a second crusade in 1144 where they went to the aid of Jerusalem. um, And so for a while, the Christians took the Middle East, took the Holy Land, that's what they called it, they took the Holy Land back, they took Jerusalem back uh, for a while, but that did not last. Um, And we'll talk more about that when when a final crusade is launched, or the next crusade is launched With uh, names of people you're probably more familiar with, um, around this time. So we're around 1100. So now, one other thing about Pope Gregory the Seventh, Pope Gregory the Seventh, uh, and all the popes now at this time. Uh, so ten, we're around 1100 in Europe. So at this time. The majority of people in Europe are illiterate. Uh, the reality is, very many priests who are pastoring churches, overseeing flocks, very many of the priests were illiterate. They could recite the Latin Mass, but they couldn't read. The Bible. They were taught the mass and they could recite it, but they couldn't even read it. And so they did much of what they did from memory. Leading the people in the mass. But in many cases, you had priests who couldn't read a Bible and didn't know what the Bible said. They only knew what the church taught them. And you had people sitting in the mass who also Even if they could read, they didn't possess a Bible because the church would not allow the people, the laity, to have a Bible. Because the church believed that it was dangerous for people to read the Bible on their own. That was the official stance of the church. Now we go from, you know, these guys who are, of course this is Methodius and Cyril are in the Eastern Church, but There's really not at that time an Eastern and a Western distinction like you've got the great schism in 1054 where the Western and Eastern churches split. And they don't get along anymore. And so by this time, when the investiture controversy is taking place in 1076, the Western church's official position is it's dangerous for people other than the priesthood other than the clergy, to have a Bible, to be able to read a Bible. In fact, it is against the law for people to read a Bible because it's dangerous, because only the church can give the correct interpretation of the Bible. And so Pope Gregory was really big on this. Uh, He was afraid of the church being corrupted, and at this point in time, The popes believed that one of the greatest corruptions that could take place was if the people actually read the Bible for themselves and misinterpret it. And then they would just, they would corrupt everything because they wouldn't really understand why the church did what it did. And so it wasn't just the people, but many of the priests. Well, um, in the 1100s, you had a guy by the name of Peter Bruce. Peter Bruce was a priest in Lyons, France. And Peter Bruce was literate. He could read. And Peter Bruce loved to read the Bible. And Peter Bruce, who was a Catholic priest, believed that the people should also read the Bible. Now, the problem back then was you didn't have a Mardell or an Amazon where you could just order a Bible. And go or go to the store and pick one up and then start reading it. Uh, Bibles were very few and far between and hard to come by. And if you did, by chance, have an opportunity to get a Bible, it would be very, very expensive. So as you can imagine, uh, only people of great means who were literate even had an opportunity to, to buy a Bible. But Peter Bruce, who was a literate priest and spent his life as a priest, reading and teaching the Bible, he read the Bible. He read the Bible to his people and he taught his people from the Bible and he taught them to love the Bible. And so the people that Peter Bruce taught came to be known as brucians Now, this was all good and fine and Peter Bruce did this for you know, a couple of decades. And then somewhere along the way, the people high up in the church found out, hey, you got this priest over here in Lyons, France, and he's teaching people how to read the Bible. And he's, not, he's encouraging people to read the Bible. In fact, he reads the Bible to the people. He's not just doing the mass. He's actually teaching people to read the Bible and encouraging them to do so. So, um, and they eventually, long story short, they burned him at the stake for heresy because he taught people how to read the Bible. Now you had another guy in southern France. He was not a priest. He was just a, he was a, a wealthy merchant. This was a very wealthy businessman. So remember, in the feudal system, you had different categories of people. Uh, if you are a serf, uh, it was almost impossible for you to rise up out of that because you didn't own anything. Uh, you were just trying to survive. But there was, there developed another class of people. It was the merchant class. And this, is, this, this was the class of people who were craftsmen. So these were people who had skills that were necessary. And it could be anything from carpentry to, to uh, blacksmithing, To um, you know any type of skill necessary for life, these are the guys who established guilds. Um, Our modern-day equivalent of a guild would be a a labor union, and they had guilds. And this is where the whole system of apprentices came about, where they would teach someone a skill. They'd have an apprentice, and he didn't work for pay, but he worked to learn a skill. He was given maybe a place to live and in a meal. Um, and he learned a skill, and then if he worked really hard and was really good, he could eventually be certified as a master, and then he could start a business. Well, Peter Waldo was a merchant who somehow rose up out of that feudal system to become a very wealthy individual. And Peter Waldo also was literate, And Peter Waldo also loved to read the Bible. And in reading the Bible, Peter Waldo, as he's reading the Bible, comes to this revelation that God's word must be the final authority. The church can't be the final authority. God's word must be the final authority. And even the church must be subject to God's word. And Peter Waldo, because he was extremely wealthy, he had the means to actually have Bibles printed. So Peter Waldo commissioned scribes to begin to write, copy the Bible so that he could begin to distribute the Bible and distribute scriptures to the common people. So he had the Bible written uh, into the French language, into the common language of of the Frankish people, the French people in 1100. And um, then, and so he's the guy, so he's a merchant. So he would gather merchants, how he made his money. He He sold goods. And so he would organize other Christian merchants and they would go to... You know what might be a fair or a farmer's market or a market in a city where people have to go buy things because you didn't have supermarkets. You didn't have WalMarts. You had markets, and in the markets you had people selling their wares. And so Peter Waldo, um, Peter Waldo would would get these Christian merchants. He would have the scriptures copied. He'd give copies of the scripture, and then when people would come to the market to buy their things they would use that as an opportunity to witness and they would, they, would, uh, they would kind of hint around and find out if someone might be friendly or they're Christian and would you like to know more about the Bible and then that's how they would secretly give scriptures to people. And um, eventually Peter Waldo... Peter Waldo decides that he is going to sell. He's going to cash everything in and he um, gives his money. Basically, he takes his money, he cashes everything in and he devotes his life to Christ and he creates an an order of people. I can't remember what they're called. Um, What were they called? They were called the poor men of Lion. And these were men who basically, uh, they weren't really a, an order of monks because Peter Waldo wasn't a priest. He was just a businessman. But he had other Christian men who decided to follow his example and basically cash everything in and use their wealth to minister to the people and to the poor. And uh, they, they did this. Uh, this was uh, rather unusual at this time in history. And so these people became known as the Waldensians. And they, they spread throughout Europe and these were people who devoted their lives to copying the scriptures and, and pr- promoting the scriptures, sharing the gospel and teaching people to love God's word. So, Peter Bruce and Peter Waldo, the Petrobrusians were the people that followed Peter Bruce, because after they burned him at the stake, they were Christians who continued that work of teaching people to love the Bible, to read the Bible, to trust the Bible. Don't trust the church, trust the Bible. Trust the church as far as the church is teaching you what the Bible teaches you. So, if you think about it, in the, in the 1100s here, this is, this is 400 years, 500 years before um, the Reformation. It's 400 years before Jan Hus. It's 300 years before John Wycliffe. And so with the reform, so you have the Pope trying to reform the church in one way, but you have these other men who are seeing the corruption in the church. And it's not that Gregory was trying to do a bad thing. He just, he was misguided in not allowing the people. He allowed his fear. You know, how did anybody come to know God in God's word? It's because people had the ability to read it. Jesus certainly encouraged people to read the scripture Paul certainly encouraged men to read the scripture, but somehow, by the time we get here to the you know to the 11th century um, of the church or the 10th century of the church, the church has lost this, and now they're trying to protect the people by keeping the Word of God from them. But you had faithful men like Peter Bruce and Peter Waldo who recognized the fallacy of that and and God moved, and eventually God brought a great reformation. But it, was, it didn't happen overnight, and it was, it was very costly. A lot of people were persecuted for their faith simply because they wanted to read the Bible, and they trusted the Bible more than they trusted the church. And so, you know, we look in history and we see how God moved, and we, we think God just moves instantly overnight, And you think about the centuries it took for the Reformation to come about. It wasn't just a couple of decades. It was many centuries that led to the Reformation. What is going to lead to our own Reformation today? I don't know, but we need to learn from history. And so the, the fact that men like Peter Bruce and Peter Waldo were faithful, even though it cost them their lives, and they never saw the Reformation that they were believing for, but they were absolutely instrumental parts of it that led to that reformation. It's no different for us today. We don't know what our faithfulness will one day contribute to, but we know that it will contribute to something, and so we must be faithful whether we see it or not in our lifetime. All right, any thoughts, any questions? Yes. Yes. So he realized that instead of being led by fear, like all the people after him were, he was actually, he actually, I believe he realized that that's where true strength is. Absolutely. That's why he based the common law on the Ten Commandments. So you remember, so with Alfred at that time, um, you know, in the, in the ninth century, there's not a. There's not a central authority like right. the papacy turned into right. by the time we get to this this time in the in the 11th century, the 10th century, yeah. Right. So then, once they have that power, they wanted to hang on to it. Yes, and it's the exact opposite. because and that's exactly right. And so when you think about the investiture controversy, and the pope is saying, well. You can't just let uh, a, the, the position of a bishop be bought by the highest bidder, you know. But you, and, and so the, the emperor, the kings did that to hold on to power. And the pope's doing the very same thing by keeping the word of God from people, you know. We may lose, we may lose our authority and our power if we let the people have the word of God because they're going to misinterpret it. Yeah. Yes. For, which is translating the scripture into the yes. So people could have access to it. Absolutely. And then you think of John Wycliffe, you know, he's burned at the stake by uh, the English royalty and the church together because he's doing what King Alfred wanted to do right. or what King Alfred did. Yeah. And, you know, uh, he no doubt made that argument, but it didn't matter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? All right, any prayer requests tonight?